this week we are focusing on the imitation game this was also my first time watching the movie i don't know if we'll talk about this later you had already seen the movie i've seen the movie many times oh many times many times i used to watch it i didn't know that i don't know like every other month kind of really wow i had no idea i really like this movie i thought it was just one you saw like a while ago that makes me so happy yeah and i would make my family watch it when i was living at home like (laughs) it was a good time Is it history? Is it fiction? Is it somewhere in between? What's the real story behind the movie you think you know? This is Real Fiction. So Alan Turing, I guess the best way to describe him is he doesn't really like to follow the rules. He really doesn't have a lot of respect for, I guess, like the rigid class system and expectations of what he's supposed to be doing, which affects his work in school. Um, so as a student, he didn't really have an interest in non-science classes, like literature and classics, even though at the time, uh, literature or especially classics were considered a very gentlemanly pursuit. A lot of report cards from when he was a kid were, were released later and they're kind of entertaining to read. So like, for example, this is a quote from his English teacher. I can forgive his writing, though it is the worst I have ever seen. And I try to view tolerantly his unswerving inexactitude and slipshod dirty work, but I cannot forgive the stupidity of his attitude towards sane discussion on the New Testament. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was definitely an atheist. Or Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, right. yeah. He's, he's a smart kid, and he had a lot of interest in maths and sciences and astronomy, code-breaking also specifically, but he just, he, that didn't translate necessarily to be a good student. But another student that he met at school, Christopher Morecambe, he was a student in Ellen's science classes that had a passion for the similar subjects. Christopher also really liked code-breaking, and they would practice writing encrypted messages. What's that you're reading? It's about cryptography. Like secret messages. Not secret. That's the brilliant part. Messages that anyone can see, but no one knows what they mean, unless you have the key. How's that different from talking? Talking? When people talk to each other, they never say what they mean. They say something else. You're expected to just know what they mean. Only I never do. Alan, I have a funny feeling you're going to be very good at this. Christopher was a brilliant student. He wins a scholarship to one of the most prestigious colleges at Cambridge, Trinity. Uh, Christopher is very important in the movie. They do focus on him a little bit during flashbacks, and they bring him up often. I think it's just important to talk about him here because Alan falls in love with him. Christopher is Alan's first love. He does fall in love with him in school, but he keeps his feelings to himself. And unfortunately, at 18, Christopher Morecambe succumbed to bovine tuberculosis that he contracted after drinking infected cow's milk. This was before he even went to college. They, I believe in the movie, they're younger, right, when he passes away. Yeah, they seem like maybe 12 or 13 um, right. They're still they're still pretty young. Yeah. Anyway, so after his death, though, he becomes close with the Morkham family. They invite him on trips, and he just visits them regularly. So it does also serve as a testament to just how important Christopher was in Alan's life going in forward. The bi- like I in think, the biography, yeah. it seems like Christopher's achievement in school kind of inspired Turing to be a better student. Like, he did try harder when... He- when he realized that Christopher was okay with being a good student, it was no longer it was like now something that he could achieve in the movie. It seems like Christopher is the only, the only important mm, person true. in Turin's life, and he names his machine 
after Christopher, and that definitely didn't happen, you know? We'll find a clue here that we can build into Christopher. Who's Christopher? Oh, he's, uh, he's my machine. You named him? Is that a bad name? No. No, never mind. His, he didn't name his computing no. machine Christopher. So, like, that is a bit of an exaggeration, but we will get to the machine later. Turing ended up earning a scholarship to King's College in Cambridge, where he would go on to pursue mathematics. Um, and just a couple of background things about his personal life also. So, I mean, in school, he was closed or he was more closeted about his feelings. But once he got to college, he also became more open about his sexuality. And he had sexual and romantic relationships with numerous men. So Christopher definitely wasn't the be-all, end-all thing. And also the way that the movie treats his sexuality isn't quite, or rather how he treats his sexuality in the movie doesn't quite line up with how open he actually was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really much of a secret. And King's College um, was a sort of oasis, I guess. It was definitely more liberal-minded. Yep. Separately, also in his personal life, Alan Turing was a very skilled long-distance runner. Uh, it was interesting finding out about that because in the movie they include that a lot. Like it, when he's ever struggling with a problem or they need to skip, like go forward in time, they show him running. Yeah, and you never really know how it's related other than to like blow off steam. But he was actually like an extremely skilled amateur runner. Yeah. yeah. And he did try out for the Olympics and would have made the team possibly if it weren't for an injury. We don't know. After he's recruited to Bletchley Park um, in 1939, Turing becomes famous at Bletchley Park. Or he has a nickname, Prof. Yes. <laughs> and he's also a man of, quote, various eccentricities. So he has a lot of things he likes to do. I think the one I liked was where he would chain his mug to the radiator to keep it from being stolen. I like the one where he wore a gas mask to bike to work because he had really bad hay fever, oh, I think yeah. that's what it was. <laughs> Which is just like a great image. I was reading a couple of articles that described how he was inaccurately portrayed in the movie as kind of like on the autistic scale. You get a sense mm. that he doesn't really have any social skills. And he was very eccentric, but he did also get along with people, which we can get to more later. Alan Turing is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and the whole time you're trying to see, like, him struggle to be different than Sherlock. <laughs> His eternal struggle. <laughs> well, I believe you just set the record for the shortest job interview in British military history. Oh, uh, <laughs> Mother says I can be operating sometimes oh, on account of being one of the best mathematicians in the world. In the world? Oh, yes. But yeah, it definitely felt like a sort of like... Yeah. It wasn't as tense as it was in the movie. Yeah. Where everyone hated him and to make friends, he like buys yeah. them apples it's or like something. The kind of... Right? He brings them an apple and tells them a bad joke and leaves. Yeah. And it's kind of <laughs> cute, I guess. What are those? Apples. No. Oh, they really are. Um, I, well, Miss Clark Joan actually um, said that it would be <clears throat> nice if I was to... Uh, bring you all something, so here we are. I... Thank you. I like apples. I feel in the movie that's kind of, that's one of the most important developments at, in his character is that he becomes, he becomes able to socialize with his colleagues and they accept him. And I don't think there was ever that much trouble in him kind of making those relationships. If you really want to solve your puzzle, then you're going to need all the help you can get. And they are not going to help you if they do not like you. Yeah, I don't think so. And he's a witty guy. Yeah. Like, he makes funny jokes. I think he would tell good jokes. Yeah. We're going to talk more about Bletchley Park and the people at Bletchley Park later, so I'm just going to kind of move over to Alan Turing's life after Bletchley. In 1946, after the war, he does get appointed the officer of the Order of British Empire by the king, but his work does remain a secret for many years. So he's, he's by no sense a public figure, and his work isn't being 
publicly recognized. In January 1952, he starts a relationship with Arnold Murray, and on January 23rd, Turing's house gets burgled. Murray claims the burglar was possibly an acquaintance, and they report this to the police to give them the information. Turing reports the crime, but during the investigation, he acknowledges that he has a sexual relationship with Murray. Both are charged with gross indecency. He's brought to trial in March 1952. Like many similar trials, he chooses a year treatment, a therapy treatment for injections of a castration solution instead of going to prison. During this year, he continues to consult the government communications headquarters, or GCHQ. This is sort of the successor to Bletchley Park. But homosexuals had become ineligible for security clearance. And in some ways, it's, it's viewed as a security risk for a lot of incredibly insane, troubling reasons. But he ends up being excluded from a lot of his work. His personal life is under intense surveillance, and this this just takes an emotional toll on, toll on him. Um, and that was the reason, well, one of the reasons why homosexuality could be deemed a security clear, security risk was kind of, was implied in the movie when um, the Soviet spy blackmails him. No, you don't. Because if you tell them my secret, I'll tell them yours. Do you know what they do to homosexuals? They'll never be able to work again, never be able to teach. And that was a fairly common, not concern, but it was a defense of why homosexuality could be so dangerous, which seems ridiculous right. now. So, yeah. yeah. But two years after his trial, and a year after the therapy ends, Alan Turing dies of cyanide poisoning. He leaves behind this half-eaten apple by his bed. And the reason this is important is because his mother has always held that he died of accidentally ingesting cyanide from his fingers from working in the lab, that he got on the apple and ingested that way accidentally. But it generally seems more likely that this was specifically arranged by Turing to let her believe this. It's, it was ruled a suicide. It is generally believed to be a suicide. But the apple does have a lot of significance because it does seem very intentional. And I know that his mother did have a penchant for always reminding him to wash his hands after doing all mm -hmm. this experience, and she did sort of always keep after him with his cleanliness. So knowing that, it seems likely that Turing would have been well aware of that if he were to stage a suicide this way. In the 1930s, when he was at Cambridge, I think he... Well, when did Snow White come out? I mean, it was around that time. 1938. Yes, so in 1938, he was still at Cambridge, I believe, and he went to see it, and he was very taken with the image of the poison apple. And I think this has been perhaps exaggerated how, if this is related to how he died, but that came up a lot in a lot of the biographies I was reading. Right. So, most of the characters represented in the film were historical figures, but they weren't all working together in Hadid at the same time. So, for example, Peter Hilton, who's the boy who loses his brother in that very dramatic scene where they realize they can't give away all of the intel they've gathered. We can't act on every piece of intelligence. Oh, fine, we won't. Just this one. My, my brother's. Well, he's on the car I'm so sorry. Do you think you are? My brother. He's my big brother, all right. You have a few minutes to call off his murder. We can't. Um, he did join Hut 8, but it was in 1942 after they had already first broken um, the Enigma cipher. So 
one character who I want to bring up, well, one historical figure who I want to bring up who actually wasn't a character in the movie, but really should have been, was Gordon Welchman. He is extremely important to both the history of Bletchley Park, but particularly to the history of Breaking the Enigma. Welchman and Turing actually worked together to create the machine, which helped them decrypt the Enigma ciphers, um, which is called the British Bomb. We'll explain this more when we talk about the code-breaking process. Welshman was also important because he recruited another important character in the film, which was Joan Clark. <laughs> so, Joan Clark is Kira Knightley in the movie. Very important to remember that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's... I guess one important takeaway is that Joan Clark did not get into Bletchley Park with a crossword test, which is what you see in the movie. The such a bummer. Crossword... I know, it was such a good scene. That... Yeah. But, um... Yeah. So, in the movie... Um, Turing kind of devises this crossword puzzle, which is sent out in, I can't remember if it's the Daily Telegraph in the movie, but it's a major newspaper in London. Um, And if people can complete it in a certain amount of time, they call this number and they're told to come to this highly secret testing location where they do another test. And if they complete that, then Turing recruits them, recruits them for um, his code breaking activities. So who are they? Uh, All sorts, really teacher, an engineer, a handful of students. And you think they're qualified for Bletchley because they're good at crossword puzzles? Well, they say they're good, and now we shall find out, won't we? And in the film, that's how Joan Clark gets into HUD-8. She completes the puzzle in the newspaper. She comes, everyone's like, you're a woman, you can't do this. She's like, I completed the puzzle, they told me to come here. She does it, she's the fastest, obviously. And (laughs) Turing invites her into the hut. Six minutes. Is that even possible? No. It takes me eight. This isn't about crossword puzzles. It's about how one uh, approaches solving an impossible problem. Do you tackle the whole thing at once or divide it into small? You finished? Yes. Five minutes and 34 seconds. You said to do it in under six. So, the crossword, a crossword puzzle was used to recruit people in a way. Um, the Daily Telegraph um, regularly printed cryptic crossword puzzles, and in January 1942, one of these puzzles was used by Bletchley Park to recruit codebreakers. But Turing had nothing to do with this, and Clark did not get into Bletchley Park through this manner. Um, she was recruited by Welshman out of Cambridge and joined GCCS in June 1940 to help with the decryption of the Naval Enigma. However, as a woman, this probably isn't a surprise to most people, but um, As a woman, they gave her lots of respect and paid her equally, and she got her due, right? Oh, exactly. No, <laughs> Bletchley Park was very sexist. And she couldn't be hired as a cryptanalyst, crypto- so she was classed as a linguist, which allowed her to be in Hut 8, but meant she wasn't paid as much. Um, and according to a 2014 BBC article, she really enjoyed the fact that like later she would fill out forms that said, grade linguist, languages none. Um, and I just, that's fantastic. Um, so she was important to Huddy's work in breaking, um, in working on the Naval Enigma. And she and Turing actually became very good friends. And this is shown in the movie. Also shown in the movie is that Turing proposed to her and she accepted. And those are both true. Oh my God. This makes sense. Did you just propose to me? Which is the logical thing to do. This is ridiculous. This is your parents. I, I, I can't believe that this is happening. There are some other things that just 
when I was reading them, I was just like, this is such a nice relationship, like, just such a nice <laughs> friendship. So Turing would rearrange their shifts so they could work together. And in at least one source, I found that they built their own chess set so they could play together. And Joan was actually taking Hugh Alexander's classes, like, chess classes. Oh and my god. And so they, it, was, it was just That's kind of kind of a nice the cutest image. Thing. Um, so Turing did tell Joan pretty early on that he was gay. And originally this wasn't really a breaking point. They still decided to go on with their engagement. But a few months after he proposed, they did decide to end the engagement. And both were very upset. But they did remain friends after Bletchley on, until Turing's death. So another important character in the movie is Hugh Alexander. He, if you remember, is a British chess champion. And he started at Bletchley, in, not in the movie, in the movie, he just kind of is the leader of HUD 8 from the beginning. In the movie, Hugh Alexander, I feel like they they position him. They take a lot of Welchman stuff and give it to Alexander. Oh, absolutely. Alexander. He's, yeah. And he's like the suave, I don't know. He's like the suave <laughs> social know. person who just completely, like, is juxtaposed to Turing um, and all of that. The smooth, suave, codebreaker chess champion. You know, all those really yes. suave chess you know, champions. How, how they do. <laughs> But um, Alexander and Turing did stay friends after the war. At Turing's trial for um, gross indecency, Alexander testified that Turing was a national asset, and he also emphasized that um, Turing was a personal friend to both him and his wife. So I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah. It is nice that it also, I mean, obviously over the course of the relationship, we have to see them like become friends with each other yeah. and go from enemies to friends and so forth. But it is nice to also know that historically they were very close. Yeah, even after and they stayed. Fleshlight. They stayed close. Yeah. So now to some more minor characters, I guess, in the film. Um, so Alistair Dennison, he has some great scenes in this film. Um, <laughs> Played by another and, Game of Thrones actor. We're just yeah, gonna keep playing that there game. There are a <laughs> like, lot which of game, British actors. Wait, it's Charles Dance, right? Yes, Charles Dance. Yes. Um, there are a ton of there. Well, I like to say that in most British films, they're picking from a selection of maybe like fifty actors, so you get a lot of crossover. <laughs> um. Historically, Alistair Dennison was the operational head of JCCS from 1919 to February 1942. And the tensions between Dennison and Turing that are presented in the film aren't really how it was. We'll never understand the importance of what I, I am creating here. Have you decrypted any German messages? Can you point to anything at all that you've achieved? Oh, your funding is up. And our patience has expired. It's with such great pleasure that I am finally able to say this. Alan Turing, you're fired. Dennison actually recruited Turing for the code school. So he clearly wasn't as biased against mathematicians as the film suggests. In the film, would you say he's the closest thing we have to the villain here? Because I know the Nazis are like the ultimate yeah, villain, besides, but just like, like the Nazis, yeah. The per- or not villain, but I guess the source of conflict because he's the one who keeps yeah. like giving Turing all these deadlines and saying he's going to fire him at any minute. Yeah, no, I definitely would agree with that. And he's kind of portrayed as like hindering Turing's grand vision. And one scholar did suggest that Turing had little time for Denison because Denison never understood the scope and importance of what Turing was doing in HUD 8. And I also do think that Dennison wasn't very good at pushing for what the Codebreakers actually needed to achieve what they needed to achieve. So, But I think this seems like it was more just like not understanding how important these supplies were and not like intentionally trying to stop their progress, yeah. you know, which is what it seems like in the film. 
in the film, there's a scene where Turin sends a letter to Churchill bypassing Deniston. Who, who is your commanding officer? Winston Churchill, number 10 Downing Street, London, SW1. You have a problem with my decision, you can take it up with him. And this kind of did happen. Turing did send this letter along with other leaders of HUD-8 and HUD-6, and Churchill immediately ordered these resources should be provided on extreme priority. Which is awesome. Yes. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry, but are you joking? Churchill's put Alan in charge. This is a terrible idea. No, 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 no. no. So I can give these men orders uh, now? I hate to say it, but yes. Excellent. Keith and Charles are both fine. Excuse me. What? So the last character who I'm going to talk about is John Cancross, who was the Soviet spy played by Alan Leach from Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, yep. yep. <laughs> Again, one of the pool of 50 British actors that yep. we've grown to know and love. But seriously. <laughs> um, so he actually was a Soviet spy working at Bletchley Park, um, and he sent almost thousands of documents on Enigma to the Soviet Union. However, there are two major points that I'd like to bring up about how his portrayal in the film was inaccurate. First of all, he wasn't identified as a spy until at least 1951, so... Yeah, in the movie they implied that they knew all along. Not just that Turing yeah. discovers it halfway through but like the leadership the blackmail thing. It's also, yeah, yeah that the higher-ups know he's a spy. And they're using it, yeah. but... You'd be so much better at this than he is. You knew it was him. Of course I bloody knew. I knew before he came to Bletchley. Why do you think I had him placed here? No, that, I don't think, that doesn't seem like it was the case. Unless something has just hasn't come out yet, which I mean is possible. Yeah, it's always possible. Um, um, it's highly unlikely that Turing and Kincross ever would have run into each other at Bletchley. So, yeah, he they wouldn't have been was working, not yeah. in Hut 8 with Turing, yeah. 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 It's interesting uh, how they sort of picked these characters and then yeah. just decided to put them all in Hut 8 and make them a team. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like they've, they know who all these characters are separately and thought, oh, these would all be interesting people to have. Yeah, I guess having the spy in there kind of does add some tension to... <laughs> I feel like they felt like they needed to add tension. And this is literally a war movie. You don't have to add any more tension. I remember finding out when the twist happens and you find out he's a Russian spy, I thought that was going to lead to a, a whole other thing. Yeah, because I really didn't know. I thought this was real, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Now it's a spy movie, and we're gonna have to oust the spy, and like he's yeah. the new enemy. You know, I was like, I thought this was gonna be a totally different direction we were going on, and then it ends up not really being that important anyway. So. It's only important to the blackmail. Yes, which I mean, I guess was important to have, but again, as you were saying, he wasn't ashamed of his homosexuality. Yeah, I'm not sure how strong that blackmail would have been. And now we're gonna go into more about the code breaking itself, but I just. Um, want to bring up a thing about sources, which we encountered. Because so much of this was secret for so long, there's still a lot of information coming out and different interpretations of what was going on at that time. So even when we were researching, Emily and I came across different information. And some of it's because we're reading memoirs that were written in like the 1980s or whatever, yeah. before all the information was out and before people knew what was going on. And some of it's just people knew different things based off of who they knew. Yeah, so really without um, without any anyone really like outright lying necessarily, there were still contradictions just in the different accounts and from the different times of writing. Right. So this is, I'm very excited to talk about this section because I think this is fascinating even though I'm mad at the movie for leaving it out. <laughs> so... We're going to talk about Poland. So Turing, during the film, makes one mention 
when he joins today, he makes one mention of Polish code breaking. Where they yeah. put an enigma machine on the table and say, here's what the Poles gave us, and then move on. Yeah. It's only when you feed them back into Enigma that they make any sense. But we have an Enigma machine. Mm, yeah, Polish intelligence smuggled it out of Berlin. So what's the problem? Just put the intercepted messages back into the Enigma and you'll but get... It's not that simple. So the film makes the achievement of breaking the Enigma cipher seem to rest solely with Turing and his team, and this was definitely not the case. In reality, breaking Enigma was an international effort um, in what is sometimes described as the Enigma relay, and the Polish and somewhat by extension the French were crucial to this relay team. So I just want to introduce the three main Polish mathematicians working on Enigma, Marian Rayevsky, Henryk Zagowski, and Jetsy Rudzicki. So these were three Polish mathematicians. They had been working on breaking German codes for much longer than we get a sense of in the movie. The chief of the French radio intelligence, Captain Gustave Bertrand, um, established a relationship with the Polish general staff who were the Polish mathematicians working on the Enigma. So the Polish and the French established a system where the French would get intelligence from Germany and could pass it on to the Poles, and the Poles would focus on the theoretical studies of the Enigma intercept. The idea of the relay is like it, took, it happened over this very long period of time. And so if you think about it, the British kind of came into it pretty late, um, and obviously they were important to it, but um, the idea that it was like a one-man team, or one man, the one man being British yeah. team. <laughs> I don't know. It just I don't know what the proper metaphor is for it, right. but there's a lot that's left out of the story. As part of this process, uh, the Polish built Enigma doubles, and this is insane because they had never actually seen a military Enigma machine, but they were able to rebuild it based off of the materials they had and their mathematical knowledge, and then an, I think it was described as an like intuition about how Germans thought. <laughs> um, so they were able to build basically copies of how the Enigma machine worked, and they eventually sent two of these, uh, one to the British and one to the French. So throughout the 1930s, the Germans were rapidly changing the military Enigma machine and how it was operated, but the Polish were able to keep up, for the most part, due to a combination of German mistakes, which I just think is fun. A lot of the reason that anything was able to happen was because the Germans were kind of either like lazy or just kind of stupid. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they were obviously very smart, but they like made mistakes that you're like, they shouldn't have done that. Um, but also yeah. mathematical skill, and the Polish had some like lucky coincidences where they received information that helped them um, kind of stay on top of the Enigma cipher. In September 1938, the Germans changed the process of using Enigma so that the operator selected the basic um, the basic position, told the receiver how to interpret the message. I'm not a mathematician, <laughs> no, but it's very complicated. So one of the mathematicians, Ruzitsky. Um, managed to design a machine which could recover the Enigma keys, and this was the Bomba. I don't actually know how you say it in Polish, but I like that. I like saying the Bomba. Bomba. Yeah, um, I know. So the it sounds fun. It, it does sound fun. So the machine could find the daily keys in two hours. Um, so although it would potentially have been possible for the Polish to continue to break the Enigma cipher, uh, they didn't really have the resources they would have needed to create more Bombas and to keep up with it. So that was one factor that contributed to them, quote unquote, passing the baton in the Enigma relay. I really like this metaphor. So <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's also great so, because uh, Turing's the long distance runner. Yeah. Oh, it's all comes full circle. It's all connected. Oh, so this is the takeaway. Everything can relate to running. <laughs> also, um, Keira Knightley's in this movie. Also, yes. <laughs> no, Keira Knightley. Joan Clark is Keira Knightley. 
So that's what I'm going to say on the Polish code breaking, which I know is a lot, but this is very important to me to include in this episode because I recognize that this whole background could not have been incorporated into the movie. This could definitely have been a whole movie on its own. But the fact that it gets merely mentioned, barely mentioned in the entire film. I mean, the movie has so much focus on like shining a light on all these things we don't know about Turing and the other people in HUD 6 and HUD 8. It's sort of a shame that in itself also kind of takes away some of the credit from other people that... It really feels like Turing and Steam are the only people involved in decrypting the Enigma cipher, and that Turing has come up with the idea for this machine completely on his own. And that definitely wasn't the case. The Bomba was a precursor to the British bomb, which Emily will talk more about in a second. But some other things that the film kind of suggests... that The film suggests that having broken the cipher once, that was kind of it. They didn't really have to do anything else. But that was wrong, Um, Even the Polish earlier on had to keep updating their methods, and it was the same with the British. They had to keep updating and to keep up with um, the changes that the Germans were making, because the Germans weren't idiots. Like, they knew that they could improve their system, and they did, and the British responded. I think that is a very simple, simplified way to use for a movie audience. Yeah. Of just, like, movie audiences will understand, oh, it's a decrypted thing, and now it's encrypted. So but let's go into what the Brits actually did do. So when we go look at the Enigma machine itself, the Enigma machine, it's, it's interesting to look at because it looks like a very simple, unassuming typewriter, basically. Uh, it's this little typewriter. It's got a keyboard next to it and this like lamp board that lights up underneath. So you type into the typewriter what you're writing, and the, li- the lamp will light up the different coded letters. So if I hit a T, like a C lights up, or whatever the coded letter is going to be for that one. M. Y. M. M. S. S. There were also multiple versions of the Enigma machine that were used by the different branches of the German military. And then, like we said, there are also further advancements added later. When they add that extra rotor in 1942, Hut 8 has to spend a whole nine months or so just solving it all over again, which obviously they don't include in the movie because we just want to have a happy ending and be like, they solved it, we're done. But... It would be much, much less... Um, it would be much less satisfying. Satisfying if they were like, and they had to do everything over again. Um, so the Bombas. Wait, did I tell you this? That the reason that they were called... The Polish called them Bombas was because they made like a little tick, tick, tick sound? Like a bomb? I like that a lot. I really like that. Um, I'm also not sure if the British version of it was pronounced Bombas or Bombs. Yeah. Like maybe it's a silent it's E. It's spelled often B-O-M-B-E-S in British sources. It was also a way to distinguish... Like, in my head, I was distinguishing between the Polish version of it and the British version of it, which they're obviously named, like, the same thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, we'll we'll talk about British bombs, which are the successor to the Polish bomba. So, in the early stages of the war, like we said, Bletchley Park only had the earliest and simplest versions of the machine as a reference compared to what they're going to get later. So, they had what the, the Poles were able to recreate for them. They start to have these tiny cracks in Breaking Enigma when they realize that the machine never encodes a letter as itself. And then they can also predict it based on what they think operators might use for test messages when they begin a transition, which is something that Welshman, who was never in the movie, first proposed. Uh, Words and phrases that the codebreakers would expect would be messages like Heil Hitler, or terms for the weather, or girlfriend's names. These predictable groups of letters or these predictable words, these were known as cribs. In the movie, the cribs are really just the key to the whole thing. I don't even think they really call them cribs, but the big climax of the movie is when someone's saying something, I guess, about like calling their girlfriend back home. He realizes 
that, wait, we can base it off of these test messages. All of them say Heil Hitler, we got it. And then they rush back into the hut. Or they expected them to end with Heil Hitler, which is like, if you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I would (laughs) imagine that. What if Christopher doesn't have to search through all of the settings? What if he only has to search through ones that produce words we already know will be in the message? Repeated words, predictable words, exactly. 0600 hours, weather today is clear, rain in the evening, Heil Hitler. Exactly. They send a weather report every day at 6 a.m. So that's that's three words we, we know will be in every 6 a.m. message. Uh, weather, obviously, and Heil bloody Hitler. Heil bloody Hitler. Which I'm sorry to say isn't really how it played out in real life because that was like step one. That was also yeah, the Greece. very first thing that they started with is like, well, we know it's going to say Heil Hitler. So like, let's look for things like that. And that started the code breaking process. That's like the foundational yeah. thing. Yeah, I think I told you how frustrated I was with that. Because it made them seem kind of like idiots. Like, why weren't you thinking about this before? I know. <laughs> they're, they're all very smart. They're very smart, but they're just spending all their days, like, doing calculations. We just see them, like, writing numbers everywhere. It's like, did no one think that every message starts with Heil Hitler or whatever? Or that they, like, did no one notice that they, like, described the weather every day? Or they say they do, and then I just don't understand how that doesn't... I know. That I seems know. like a pretty good place to start if you're going to pick out some some, some words to decode. I don't yeah, know. right? Yeah. From right. our very <laughs> amateurish understanding of how codes work, we yeah. are very critical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but good for them. They figured it out eventually. So, but yeah, in real life, that was step one. What ends up becoming the British bomb? Yeah, that's mostly, I would say Turing and Welshman are like mainly responsible for devising and developing what what the machine ends up becoming. The first bomb also was codenamed Victory, not Christopher. Um, I think they put this in the movie because they wanted to kind of romanticize Turing in a way and like show that, oh, he's he has the sentimentality and this vulnerability with this Christopher thing. Uh, Welchman improved on the British bomb or Victory basically with a piece of circuitry that was known that was known as a diagonal board. This machine could just look for fewer cribs and just work more efficiently. And in the movie, Hugh Alexander has a suggestion that right. makes it more efficient, right? He comes in and sort of... He moves oh, like a wire. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what if we made it diagonal? And then moves the thing to the side. <laughs> and then it's more efficient. <laughs> I wish every fix was that easy. If you run the wires across the plug ball matrix diagonally, it will eliminate rotor positions 500 times faster. That's uh, actually not an entirely terrible idea. But yeah, so the... The British bombs were also built and kept off-site. They weren't in the farmhouse in the way that they are in the movie. And there were over 200 of these standard British bombs built. It's not a giant Christopher machine. It's actually a little army of computational machines that they had created. So the lasting impact, I guess, of the British decoding was that at first they used the code breaking to stop German attacks indiscriminately. And that's pretty key because in the movie, sort of the big tension after they've solved it is that they need to choose wisely which things they save, right? Which Or which British ships they're going to save if they knew Germany is going to attack. No, no, you can't be right. So our convoy suddenly veers off course. A squadron of area bombers miraculously descends on the coordinates of the U-boats. What will the Germans think? The Germans will know that we have broken the name. By the end of the war, in 1945, Bletchley Park did clear out all of its documentation and all of its machinery, and they moved it 
to Eastcott, Middlesex, and it'll move again to what becomes the GCHQ that we talked about, the successor to Bletchley Park. It doesn't seem like they burned everything to the ground in the way that they do in the movie. Although that makes for a great image, them all dancing around the bonfire. So that's just an overview of how the decoding process works. Obviously, there are a lot more intricacies that you can read about more if you're interested in how a lot of this works. It is really interesting, um, and there are a lot of nuances to the different enigmas and bombs versus bombas. Yeah. Last thing we should probably talk about is what something that's more important specifically to Alan Turing's life, and a big theme in this movie is just also how homosexuality is regarded in early to mid 20th century England and what was the context that he was growing up in. Because legally, as we've said, uh, homosexual activity was ruled as quote unquote a gross indecency. And that was from an act that was passed in 1885. It was illegal until the passing of the Sexual Offenses Act in 1967 in England and Wales. Also, the, the convictions, though, sort of varied differently between seriousness of the crime and context. And it is possible, or it has been argued, that Turing's conviction was also affected by the age difference in the relationship and also the class difference. So only about 23% of men prosecuted in 1951 for gross indecency ended up being imprisoned, and that was usually under six months. Um, but the social punishment was really what dealt the most damage. There is, obviously, it was just something that wasn't really widely accepted in society that it just wasn't something to be discussed. So the hormone therapy, though, that he does end up having to take, since the late 19th century, which is when that fact was first passed, there are experimental theories that maintained this, like, assumption of normalcy and universality of heterosexuality, and then homosexuality is something that could be cured or fixed. So the discovery of hormones gave a quote-unquote chemical structure to ideas of masculinity and, femi and femininity. So it made it seem like something that could be scientifically... Um, malleable, or something that you could manipulate. This led to the development of hormone therapy, and the injections were meant to reduce sexual urge and inject quote-unquote feminine hormones, uh, and there are a lot of terrible symptoms from it. In the movie, they do portray him as just like sick and ailing and going through a lot of issues. They don't really go into the symptoms. The symptoms, I think, were more related to just hormonal changes and a lot of the ways that that affects your body as well. And I think he did actually continue doing like important mathematical work after. It, his mm -hmm. brain wasn't like completely addled by... Yeah. And I mean, I think in the drugs. movie he can't remember sort of basic things, right? He's sort of writing... Yeah. And his... Yeah. Your hands, you're twitching. No, no, you're not. Alan. Uh, the medication. Uh, well, the judge gave me um, a choice. Uh, uh, either two years in prison or ho hormonal therapy. Oh, my God. Oh my god. Yes, yes, that's right. Chemical castration. Um, but he, you're right, he did absolutely continue his work the best he can, yeah. uh, the best he could. Um, just some sort of modern day repercussions in the last couple years. In 2013, Alan Turing was given a royal pardon by the Queen. And in early 2017, modeled after this par pardon, Turing's law was passed. And this pardoned thousands of men who were convicted of, offen of offenses that once criminalized homosexuality. It's like, I guess, better late than never, but still. I know, but it's, it's, it's shocking how late this is. I mean, the fact that the law is only overturned in 67, and then it takes another 50 or so years, 50 right. years, just to... It's crazy. I know. So the final segment in this episode is we're going to talk about the title for a couple minutes so 
The Imitation Game, the title of the film, comes from a 1951 essay in which Turing presents a test of sorts to determine if a participant in an exercise is a human or, or machine. So in this test, the machine quote-unquote succeeds if it tricks a judge into thinking it's human. So I wanted to talk about this because my... <laughs> I, I, as I said before, I used to watch this with my family, and my dad always had a problem with this being the title of the movie because the test is really only explicitly mentioned in some of the flash-forward scenes in the interrogation with Turing and the detective, and throughout the rest of the movie, the title could be taken to reflect Turing's ability to imitate his colleagues even though he was outside societal norms and this is kind of what is implied in the biography on which the film is very loosely based there are a couple of moments where the author uses the imitation game in this way but the imitation game actually does specifically refer to the turing test and which i guess it's kind of poetic but it also somewhat distorts the point of the test also it made your dad upset it also made my dad upset. Every <laughs> single time we watched it, he was like, that's not what the imitation game is. And and then I learned, and I was like, oh, this is a Turing test. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm disappointed with the number of artistic liberties they took. Mm. Um, but it's just a, it's a very well done movie. It's, it, it is still a very nice movie. Um, I, yeah, I was surprised uh, that, that a lot of things were different, or the things that were different that they were different you know what I mean yeah. it was like an interesting choice especially with um the fact that it is just this one code they break and the poles aren't involved but yeah. also just the fact that he names the thing Christopher I mean there are so many movie elements that you can see that were sort of pushed in that I was surprised because when you're watching it you can't imagine you know They're just, it's just like things that they changed that they didn't really need to change as we were saying it's a very dramatic story it's a very important story obviously mm-hmm. so no <laughs> but I think also it did a good job in generating um, sort of an interest in Turing and Bletchley Park again. Yeah. Years and years later, because it was coming out around the time of this pardon that was happening. Right. It did do a lot in terms of bringing the story out. Yeah. So even if people weren't getting a very accurate picture from watching the movie, I think it did definitely do some sort of significant steps for Turing and the people involved in this movie and just, like, getting awareness out there. Completely agree. If you haven't <laughs> seen this movie... I hope we haven't discouraged you. <laughs> Go see this movie and just be aware. It's, it's a very good movie. Just be aware that everything doesn't happen as it does on screen. <laughs> That's our new logo. That's my... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we did it. If you're having fun listening, please rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really helps. You can also check out our website at realfictionpodcast.com where we have a suggestion box if you have ideas for a future episode. And, just for staying through our little plug, you get to hear what's up next. For next week's episode, the bad movie summary is... Girls will lose their heads for this next season of The Bachelor.